0: We've been talking in here wow, about a lot of things, but we've been working toward a real grassroots way of being able to move forward in our spiritual journeys. A way that will really take us where we want to go, but a way that, that's concrete. Some of the problems with, with uh, trying to grasp the contemplative journey uh, or spiritual journey is that the language is so abstract. The language is so ultra-spiritual that you just can't grab it. You can't figure out, well, okay, that all sounds really good, but what do I do? What do I do? And that is the thing that is so difficult. Now, it's difficult for a reason, because what we're trying to do here in contemplative life is really to express the inexpressible. There's no way to directly express what we're talking about. But what we can do is do a better job of pointing concretely to the method, to what you can do this moment, the next moment, and the one after that, That unbeknownst to you is going to take you in a direction that maybe you weren't even fully aware of until after you start to see the changes and start to see things starting to happen. Jesus was a master at this. This is why he approached everything through parable and story and additional questions back to questioners. Because what he was doing is just trying to point them in a direction. If you walk this way, you know, out of the 613 laws that the Jews had, he just pared it down to two. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. That gives you that teeth and traction. That gives you that concrete method and way that you can move forward that will answer all the other questions eventually. The imagery that he used that would have been so understandable to his first hearers you know, is kind of opaque to us. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And so last week we were talking about how central a role the Jewish wedding tradition plays throughout the whole New Testament throughout all of Jesus teaching those images there are something that people would have grasped think about it in a in a first century agrarian setting there's not a whole lot to do there's no internet there are no movies you know you looked forward to weddings weddings were seven days of partying i mean that was a that was a deal that was a, a big deal so weddings were huge in the life of the community huge in the life of the village And so everybody understood intimately all of the details of the wedding feast. And so it was only natural that that would get moved metaphorically over to describe the spiritual journey. Or maybe it was a spiritual journey that informed the traditions that they laid down in the first place. Who knows, it's kind of a chicken and egg thing. But they moved together so beautifully. And so for those of you who weren't here last week, just a quick nutshell Jewish weddings had two parts. They had the Kedushin and the Nisuin. That was the betrothal and the actual wedding ceremony. And they could be up to a year to two years apart from each other. And when a young couple, who probably never met each other before the day of their betrothal, because marriages were arranged back then, when they finally got together on the day of their betrothal, it was as if they were married. You needed a certificate of divorce to break a betrothal, to break the Kedushin. And then... The groom, who would come from the father's house to the bride's house, would bring with him the ketubah, which was a, a contract. And in fact, the, the name for groom or the name for husband in Hebrew means the one who enters into the contract, the chatan, And the kalah, the, the, the wife, the bride, is the one who is the completed one or the enclosed one. Because in that culture, the women were protected and usually kept inside and behind the wall of all the men of the clan of the tribe. So he would bring this, this contract. If the bride read it and approved, then they would drink the, the Kadushin, which was the, or they would say the kedush over the couple, a cup of wine, which is a prayer and a blessing. They would drink from the same cup and that would seal the deal. And then the groom would give her a Tenayim, which was a promise to return. And then he would leave with his whole entourage. And he would go back to his father's house and his task now was to build the Hadar, which was the mansion or the apartment that they were going to live in, which was usually in addition to the father's house. That could take a year or two. And nobody knew when he was coming back. Only the father of the groom knew because he was the one who was approving the work. You know, In his haste, he'd probably throw any old thing up. Not to whatever passed for code back then, right? And so the father's saying, okay, wait a minute. No, it's got to be this. It's got to be this. And when he approved it, then the groom was free to go back to get his bride. At that point, he would go and it was a big game. They would usually go in the middle of the night. There would be a shout at the edge of town. They would blow the shofar, which was a ram's horn used as a trumpet. And then all of the bridesmaids would run and giggle and light their lamps and go and light the way back to the bride's house and ceremonially he would you know, proceed down with all of his groomsmen. And the father of the bride would ceremonially turn his head and they would snatch her. Remember when you do those uh, kidnapping things in, in high school? It would be kind of like that, where they would snatch her, they would carry, pick her up, and they would put her on a raised platform and carry her back to the father's house. The nature of the bride's life between the Kadushin and the Niswim is really at issue here. Because she's living a life that is a, it's kind of a two layers of awareness superimposed on each other. On one hand, she's got the anticipation of her new life as a wife and the excitement and everything that that brings. Also the fear, the fear of the unknown. But she also knows that she's going to be leaving her family and the only life she's ever known. And if the families live far enough apart, she may never see or rarely see her family again. And so living presently, living with the notion that these relationships are going to change and sucking everything out of it, learning how to be a good wife, learning what she needed to do to run a household, was her task in this time of preparation that could last this period of time. And so it's no wonder that Israel was seen as the bride of Yahweh. Living here because the Jews understood they themselves to be living between heaven and earth. Between the unity and the connection and the perfection of heaven and the individual unity and imperfection of earth. Between these two realities. Which is exactly what the bride is doing. Living between the anticipation of a new life but needing to be completely focused and present to the life that she's in. And of course the church, the Jewish followers of Jesus adopted the same imagery and the church is seen as the bride of Christ. Jesus having left with the tenayim, the promise to return, right? And living until that time should come. And so here we are, all of us, living in that period of preparation, that period between the promise to return, the betrothal, and the nissueen the actual wedding and the consummation of everything that it means to be joined as one. And so really what you have here is kind of an oxymoron. You know, like military intelligence and jumbo shrimp. It's an oxymoron. You're trying to put two things together that don't really work. It's the anticipation of something future and the excitement that that brings, the fear that that brings, and yet an intense focus on right here, right now, and everything this life means. How do you hold those things together? How do you get comfortable with that paradox, with that oxymoron? And yet Jesus is telling us that is exactly what kingdom is like. Think about it. Kingdom, he's always talking about being right here and right now and yet at the same time it has a future quality, right? Doesn't he look forward to the kingdom being established as a reflection throughout our entire society, throughout our governments, throughout our communities? And yet... He is very clear. That time will never come. That kingdom reflected in our communities and our governments will never come until enough people have found kingdom in their hearts first. Kingdom always starts from the inside out. It always starts with an absolute focus on here and now. And when enough heart lights get turned on, when you hit that critical mass, then it can spread. And still moving outward infect and affect the rest of the community. And so really what's going on is the quality of this future life, the quality of the changes that are going to be happening in the future are only possible through an intense and full focus on the quality of life right here and right now. It's it's difficult for us to get. We are so outcome-focused. We are already there. But if we miss (laughs) here... There won't be a there. At least not the there that we want. At least not the there that we're going for. Again, living between heaven and earth with the job of bringing heaven to earth, earth to heaven, merging the two, always here, always now. Think about that. If the bride doesn't focus on what she's doing right here, right now, she's not going to learn from her mother. She's not going to learn from her sisters in law and her sisters. She's not going to learn what she needs to learn to be a good wife. Learn how to run a household. Learn how to prepare meals for scads of people. I mean, this is going to be her task in her new life. Remembering that brides were only 12 or 13 years old when they were married in the ancient world, she has a lot to learn. She's moving from being a child to being a woman in very short order. And if she's focused on her future life, if she's totally focused on what's going to happen and how it's going to be, and she's counting the days and the moments until she hears that shout, hears that trumpet blast, what's going to happen? She's going to get impatient. She's going to get frustrated. She's going to get resentful. Maybe she even gets lonely. Maybe she gets tempted to be with someone else because this guy isn't coming back. What the heck is going on here? it is the melding of these two that really bring the life into focus that Jesus is talking about. The full focus here and now, but superimposed with this anticipation of radical new life coming at any possible moment. Now, this is a perfect analogy for life. Isn't it? Makes you wonder, you know, which came first? Did the Hebrews initially put these traditions into place because they were mirroring the way they were experiencing their lives? Or did life imitate art or art imitate? I don't know. But it's uncanny. As we are living our lives today, the life that you're living right now, all you have is the present moment. This is it. This is all we've got. But at the same time, we have an unknown deadline approaching, don't we? where everything is going to change. And everything that we know that it means to be human is going to change somehow. And we don't know what that change is going to be like. We say we believe that it's going to be beautiful. We say we believe that this change through death is going to be something that is covering and embracing. But it's still something we don't understand, don't know, and can fear. But here we are right now with this deadline But it's the deadline that gives us the focus. It's the deadline that makes life precious, if you will. It's not ongoing, not this life, not in this particular context. So knowing that there's an ending point, that something is going to change, brings an intensity that wouldn't be here otherwise, brings an excitement, brings an urgency that makes life an adventure, makes it worth living. Of course, the bride and we... We really want to know when that deadline is, don't we? Uh, Doesn't it make you crazy? Everybody was always asking Jesus when the kingdom was going to come. The little 12 or 13 year old bride is probably saying, Mom, when is he coming? When is he coming? We all want to know. We all want to know about our future. We all want to know about the moment of our death. What is it going to be like? When is it going to be? But if for one moment we were given that answer, it would destroy everything that we're about. Everything that we're here to do would be destroyed by knowing that deadline. I've used this analogy before, but you remember the karate kid, wax on, wax off? No. Mr. Miyagi doesn't tell the karate kid why he wants him to wax his cars or paint the fence or sand the floor or do any of the other things that he gives him to do. Because if for one instant the boy knew that he was actually practicing karate moves, everything he thought he understood about martial arts would mess up the pure motion that he needed to get into muscle memory. It's the same thing here. If for one moment we knew this outcome, knew this time of this deadline, it would completely negate the reason that we're living and breathing here in the first place. Whatever we think heaven is, whatever you think heaven is, if you're waiting for it, it never comes. If we start living right now as if heaven already is, then it is. And this is the deep, deep truth that Jesus is trying to get across to us in this concept of kingdom it's not out there someplace to be observed, to be waited for. It's right here and it's right now. There is no other moment not in this life or the next life. You've heard me saying here many times, the means we use must match the ends that we seek. You can't get to ends that are radically different from the means that you're using to get there. If we want to find the unity and the connection of kingdom then we need to start acting unified and connected here and now. There is no other way to get there. Jesus is always talking about this, like breeds like, right? Not going to get walnuts from pomegranate trees. That's not the analogy he used. I just pulled that one out. All right. You know, we're all broken and we all want to be fixed. But here's the catch. We're not here to live in a fixed state. We're not here to live in a perfect state. We're here to experience the endless process of fixing, of perfecting. And once we start to understand some of these truths, now we can do this thing. We can superimpose. We can hold on to the oxymoron. We can hold on to the paradox. We realize it's not about the perfection, the fixing. It's about the process, the experience of more and more being fixed. And so typically we're looking for some big event. We're looking for some spectacular thing. We're looking for either the moment of our death. We're looking for salvation. We're looking for the second coming of Jesus, maybe the rapture. You know, how many times have I heard about people just waiting for that rapture? We've got to get that rapture. Armageddon, all these big future events that are defining to the mental processes. But what Jesus is pointing to is just right back to -to day-to-day moments right back to the everyday things that you do, no matter how insignificant they may seem, no matter how mundane they may seem. He's pointing us back. Farmers, just keep farming. Show up every day in patience. Fishermen, keep on fishing. You know, there's that return to the simplest things, the things that keep life moving, realizing that the significance is there in the seeming insignificance of the presence to every single moment. I want to give you an example. Y'all heard of the rapture? I just mentioned it. For those of you who are not familiar with it, the rapture is the theological belief that right before the end time sequence and leading to the end of the world and the second coming of Jesus commences, that God is going to pull miraculously, physically pull all the faithful church members out of the world. You may have ever seen the rapture movie where all of a sudden, you know, plane seats are empty and planes are going down because the pilots are gone and, and so on and so forth. So it's that idea that somehow miraculously they're going to be snatched up, they're going to be pulled out, and, and then the end time sequence can continue. Where did that come from? Because the word rapture is not in the Bible. You won't find it anywhere. The main proof text is at 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. So I want to take a look at that. And based on everything that we've been talking about, let's take a look at this passage and let's see what Paul is trying to do here. And the first thing that you need to know is a little bit about what's going on in in the church at Thessalonica. What's happening to the Thessalonians that Paul wrote this letter? Because people didn't write letters just on a whim. It was hard to write a letter. First of all, there's no paper, so everything was parchment or papyrus. Very difficult to get those, those materials. Very difficult to get ink. It had to be made from the secretions of animals and mollusks and all sorts. It was difficult to get the materials. Not Very few people could read and write. So you had to find a scribe who could read, and then it had to be hand-carried. It was a big deal to write a letter, so you didn't just write a letter for no reason at all. You wrote a letter when you really needed to. So why is Paul writing this letter? What's going on in the, in the church at Thessalonica? Two things are going on of particular interest. First of all, the church was being severely persecuted. Thessalonica was the capital city of the province of Macedonia in the Roman Empire. It was a trade center. It was a big city. It was bustling. It was also a free city, which meant that they were allowed to govern themselves. So they jealously guarded anything that looked like sedition, anything that looked like it was going to mess with Roman power, because if they got out of line, the Romans would come down on them like a ton of bricks and it would be all over for them. So this little Christian sect is starting to rub people the wrong way. And they were getting persecuted, not only by the Gentiles, but also by the Jews, for which there was already an enmity between Gentile, between Jewish followers of Jesus and Jews. So they were getting it from both ends. And the, and the persecution was pretty severe. And in the face of that persecution, the Jewish members of the community, were slandering Paul. They were telling him that Paul was not what he set out to be. He was a charlatan. His theology was all wrong. He was running them in the wrong uh, direction. And he was just using them for his own gain. And so Paul realizes he can't take it anymore. He's in Athens at the time with Timothy and Silas. He sends Timothy to them to try to bolster them up and to help them. And then he sends this letter where he spends three out of five chapters Defending himself and his fellow workers in terms of the way that they conducted themselves. Defending himself against the slander, trying to bolster, because the people were losing faith in Paul. And more importantly, the people were losing faith in God's promise to them that he was coming back. In the persecution and everything that was going on, where is the promise? Guess what? They were getting frustrated, impatient, <laughs> All those things we talked about in terms of the bride waiting for something to happen and trying to endure this persecution and getting just pummeled day after day after day. And not only that, what about those of their loved ones who had died? What was going to happen to them? They already died. When the Lord comes back, when the promise is fulfilled, do they get anything? So these are the issues that are swirling around as Paul is addressing them and trying to bolster them. So let's read right at... Chapter 1, verse 1, for a little bit. I've greatly edited these, and the italics you're going to see here are all mine. So what's up on the screen is going to have a lot more verbiage, but uh, just follow along. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Skipping to verse 6. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord having received the word in much tribulation, there's that first reference to the persecution, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Skipping to chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, when we could endure it no longer... In other words, all these reports that we're hearing, everything they're hearing about the church being battered and people falling away and losing heart, when they could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. Another reference to the persecution. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know. Now he spends a couple of chapters defending himself. And when he gets to chapter four, he's starting to give them prescriptions. What it is that they can do to move through this, to get to the other side. At chapter four, verse one. Finally, then brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instructions as how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. Skipping to verse 11. And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders, outsiders and not be any need, in any need. What is he telling them to do? Come back to present. Come back to your daily tasks. You know, when we get hit, when we get buffeted about what do we do, we start looking everywhere out there for some sort of relief. We look for the, you know, beam me up Scotty. We look for the mothership. We're looking for something to take this out. Make the hurting stop. And these people were no different. They were starting to look outside of themselves and Paul says, stop, stop, stop. Come back. Come back to what you're doing. Just do your work. Show up to work and work with your hands. Let, that work with your hands is, is so key. Work with your hands grounds you. Work with your hands causes you to really focus. Any of you who knit or crochet or, or have, you know, make model ships, whatever, that just locks you in in a way that other jobs don't. It's not about abstract thought, it's about coming right back down. He's trying to get them to see that. Come right back down. To everyday tasks. Let it ground you. And at the same time, what is it going to do? It's going to feed you. You're going to have your livelihood. And it's going to keep you from getting focused on all this other stuff. But he goes further. Because they had serious doubts. They wanted to know what was going to happen to them, the living, to those that they loved that were dead. How is this all going to play out in terms of God's promise? For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Notice the phrases in the italics. It is exactly mirroring the Jewish wedding tradition. The shout and the trumpet was the shofar that was blown on the edge. He is bringing an illusion into these people that they would understand. This is how it works. When you hear that shout, it's just as if the tenayim, the promise, is being fulfilled to the bride. And this caught up, sometimes it will be translated as snatched up. The word there in the Greek is harpazo, But if you take that and translate it into Latin, which Jerome did around 400, it's rapturo, which is the word that we get rapture from. Or raptors, you know, eagles and birds of prey, they're called raptors, velociraptors, you know, they snatch things, they grab things. That's the whole idea here of this word. But what is Paul really trying to do? Is he trying to focus this people on something that is going to be millennia away? Because now we're 2,000 years from this time period, and we're still waiting for the rapture. Actually, the rapture is only about 150 years old as a theological doctrine anyway. I'm not telling you that there is no rapture. That's not my point here. What I am saying, that Paul's primary purpose was to give these people hope again, using the imagery of the Jewish wedding feast to show them that the tenaim, the promise, would not be broken. And that whether you were dead or alive, it made no difference because you would be caught up and lifted up on that platform and carried to your father's house. It was going to happen. And that was what he was trying to get them to do. And how were they supposed to live? How were they supposed to get from here to there? By coming back to their daily tasks, to focus on this moment and these relationships and this community, to just get back down to grassroots to just go moment by moment and being fully focused. And yet with this hope, this anticipation, that at any moment that trumpet could sound, at any moment the bridegroom could be here, to either take you individually at the moment of your death, or all of us collectively in whatever is going to happen that we have no idea and can only speculate on. This is what he's trying to get across as much as he possibly can. We, as modern Westerners, always want to focus on the big events. We always want to focus on these future events. And if we do that, we're going to miss the paradoxical balance that Paul is trying to give his people, that Jesus is trying to give us in terms of living in kingdom. We're going to miss all that. The anticipation of the future hope infuses the here now. If it does that, we've got this oxymoron handled you know it's a both and and not an either or and that's so important for us to get now how we get so far off how can we read what Paul is saying and normally read it so differently in terms of rapture and end time scenario that I'm trying to give you right now you know a lot of it has to do with history Jesus delivered his message and his definition of kingdom in a completely Jewish setting. The Jews understood his words to an extent that Westerners couldn't. Even the Greeks of Jesus' day were going to get a very different message hearing the same thing. So hey, us, 2,000 years later, in another Western language that is even more detailed, more linear than ancient Greek, of course we're going to get a different message. But the church and in the history of the church, there was a parting of the way very early on between Jew and Gentile, even between Jew and Jewish follower of Jesus. In the year 49, there was an uprising in Rome between Jews and Jewish followers of Jesus, and the Emperor Claudius responded by just throwing them all out. He made no distinction between Jews and Jewish followers of Jesus. In the year 49, what's that, about 17 years after the crucifixion, Jews and Jewish followers of Jesus were still close as to be indistinguishable to the outsider and the outside eye. But by 64, from 49 to 64, the emperor Nero was actively persecuting Christians, both Jewish and Gentile, as separate from Jews. In fact, he blamed them from the great fire of Rome that he probably set himself. Then there were two Jewish-Roman wars one that was 66 to 70, in which the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. And another one called the Bar Kokhba revolt from 132 to 135. And in both of those wars, Jewish Christians would not fight with the Jews. They were hearing the, the words of Jesus. He said, when you see the city surrounded, flee to the hills. That's exactly what they did. They fled to Pella, which was in today's Jordan. And so the Jews really hated the Jewish followers of Jesus for not standing with them and fighting with them. Not only that, the Second Jewish-Roman War, also called the Bar Kokhba Revolt for Simon Bar Kokhba, who styled himself as the Messiah, who was coming as the promised Messiah of of Israel to throw out the Romans. And of course, the Jewish followers of Jesus knew that he was the Messiah. So they had this theological split. And by the mid-2nd century, the Gentiles, Jewish, the Gentile Christians outnumbered Jewish Christians, and traditionally they moved the day of the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday, and for the Jews, that meant that they were disallowing the law. So by the mid-2nd century, which is only about 140, 150, there was a complete separation between followers of Jesus and Jews, and that just got wider and wider and wider, So now, converts and new Christians and the bishops who are running the great centers of Christianity in the Eastern Mediterranean, they were completely divorced from any kind of Jewish context, any kind of understanding of what Jesus' words meant to a Jew. And so what did they do? They overlaid Greek philosophy. So Plato really becomes more important than Jesus in the way that the Western Church has looked at these scriptures And the one thing about Greek thought is that it is dualistic. It separates spirit and matter. Spirit is really good and matter is evil. And so now we see the church moving in that direction. For to be more spiritual, you have to be less physical. Celibacy was held up as the highest good. Marriage was seen as a low state. You're only supposed to have sex in order to procreate and then you weren't supposed to enjoy it. You know, that's kind of the thought process. You became more and more ascetic. You pulled away from any kind of pleasures, food. You made yourself suffer so that you could enter into the sufferings of Christ. And the church took this really masochistic bent. And this is what we have inherited. This idea that we are supposed to somehow be separate from the world, separate from all of these things. We're not supposed to be focused on this life because this life is evil. There's original sin and it's cursed and We are an incarcerated soul that is longing to be set free at death so we can go back to heaven where our real spiritual reward will be. Everything is focused there then and not here now. And the experience here now is not that good because we're not supposed to enjoy it. We're just supposed to endure it. What in the world is going on? Do you see what has happened? Jews don't think dualistically. They think holistically. Everything is one thing. Take a look here at Genesis 1. I'm just going to read this really quickly. Notice the italicized phrases once again. This is God creating the heavens and the earth, starting at verse 10. God called the dry land earth and the gathering of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Verse 12, the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and God saw that it was good. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night, and God saw that it was good. God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarmed and every winged bird after its kind and God saw that it was good. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind and the cattle after their kind and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind and God saw that it was good and God saw that all he had made and behold it was very good and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. What are the Jews trying to tell us by this? That the world is exactly the way it's supposed to be. It was very good, the way God created it. He understood exactly what he was doing when he created it. It's exactly what it needs to be for us as his chosen people to find what it is we need to find, to experience what we need to experience, to come back to him, to learn what we need to know. We don't become spiritual by pulling out of life, by making ourselves suffer and pulling away. We become more spiritual by immersing ourselves in life. What do the Jews always say? L'chaim. To life. They were a robust people. Read the Old Testament. They don't pull any punches there. And you want to talk about a soap opera, read the Old Testament stories. I mean, it is all earthy. It's all there. They are engaged in life. They move into life. It's exactly what's supposed to be happening. And Jesus did exactly the same thing. Remember this? Oh, take a look at Matthew 11:19. 19. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. So John the Baptist comes, and they see him fasting and, and denying himself. And they say that he has a demon in him. Jesus comes eating and drinking, And they say that he's a drunkard and a glutton. But the point is that Jesus was engaged in life. When he was asked why he doesn't fast, he said, Because nobody fasts. The the attendants don't fast when the bridegroom is with them. That's when you party. Right? But there will come a time when the bridegroom is taken away, and then you'll fast. But when did Jesus say that he would be with us? Forever and always, even to the end of the age. It's okay, we can engage. That's what he's telling us. Engage in life. Live it to the dregs. We are going to find the center of our spirituality when we are completely immersed in every day's detail. Using our senses to ground us, to give us the gratitude of each breath and what we're doing here. I want to read just a little passage from Marvin Wilson's book, Our Father Abraham, which is understanding the Hebrew roots of Christianity and see if this can lock it in for us. In in this rich Hebraic tradition, Jesus says a full yes to creation and the material world. In the Gospels, we read of farmers and fishermen, birds and flowers, weddings and holidays, eating and drinking and celebrating. Jesus affirmed God as creator of not only the heavenly, invisible world, but also of the earthly and tangible. Jesus called men and women not to escape from this earthly order, but to act responsibly as thankful servants, those privileged to share in the temporal blessings that the Father had bestowed. In Paul's words, all things are yours, 1 Corinthians 3, implying that as God's own children, we are to participate fully and responsibly in this present world of flesh and blood. If we find enjoyment in the here and now, we should not be surprised. We know this enjoyment comes from the hands of a loving creator who brought us into being with our best intentions at heart. Hence, the Jerusalem Talmud states that in the life to come, our afterlife, a person must give an account of every good thing he might have enjoyed in this life but did not. And that comes from the book, the Kedushin. That is the betrothal. That is the, the cup that is drunk. You know, this stuff all connects. And I lost my place entirely. In the rabbi's view, not to enjoy every legitimate pleasure was in essence to be an ingrate, ungrateful before the master of the universe. How different is that? Turn around, 180 degrees. Often when Christians become too focused on enjoying the never-ending pleasures of the spiritual world to come... They also minimize the importance of the present short-lived opportunity to glorify God in their bodies right now, First Corinthians 6. In the acute words of J. Stafford Wright, We dwell upon the immortality of the soul and forget that the vehicle for the service of God now is the body. And if we fail to serve God in the body now, we shall never be able to make up in the future for what we have failed to do now. Oh, thank you. One's body, that is, our entire being, is to be offered daily in joyful obedience as a living sacrifice to God. That's Romans 12. On the one hand, pleasure and satisfaction are not ends to be pursued in themselves, but on the other hand, enjoyment of the physical and material aspects of this life is far more than mere preparation for higher things. To enjoy is an opportunity to bring blessing to one's creator. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31. And I found this little story that I just couldn't resist. It's called The Fisherman and the Businessman. And it, it's a Brazilian story. So I don't know who wrote it. They just say it's a classic Brazilian story. There is once a businessman who was sitting by the beach in a small Brazilian village. And as he sat, he saw a Brazilian fisherman rowing a small boat toward the shore, having caught quite a few big fish. The businessman was impressed, and he asked the fisherman, how long does it take you to catch so many fish? The fisherman replied, oh, just a short while. Then why don't you stay longer at sea and catch even more? The businessman was astonished. This is enough to feed my whole family, the fisherman said. The businessman then asked, so what do you do for the rest of the day? The fisherman replied, well... I usually wake up early in the morning, go out to sea and catch a few fish, then go back and play with my kids. In the afternoon, I take a nap with my wife, and evening comes, I join my buddies in the village for a drink. We play guitar and dance throughout the night. The businessman offered a suggestion to the fisherman. I'm a PhD in business management. I could help you to become a more successful person. From now on, you should spend more time at sea and try to catch as many fish as possible. When you have saved enough money, you could buy a bigger boat and catch even more fish. And soon you'll be able to afford to buy more boats, set up your own company, your own production plant for canned food, and a distribution network. But then you will have moved out of this village into Sao Paulo, where you could set up a headquarters to manage your other branches. The fisherman continues, and after that, The businessman laughs heartily. After that, you can live like a king in your own house. And when the time is right, you can go public and float your shares in the stock exchange and you'll be rich. And the fisherman asked, and after that? The businessman says, after that, you can finally retire. And you can move to a house by the fishing village, wake up early in the morning and catch a few fish, and then return home to play with your kids, have a nice afternoon nap with your wife, and when evening comes, you can join your buddies for a drink, play the guitar and sing and dance throughout the night. And the fisherman says, Isn't that what I'm doing right now? If you're waiting for heaven, it will never come. But if you will simply live as if heaven is already here, then it is. How? Full immersion in what you're doing right here and right now, but with the sweet anticipation that life can and will radically change at any moment with a shout and with a trumpet where you'll be raised up and carried to your Father's house. Let's pray. Father, help us to see this stuff. It's so plain and basic if we can break it down this way, but it is so difficult for us to apprehend and so much more difficult to change our ingrained behavior. Help us to do exactly that, Lord. Help us to take the steps that we need to take, to see a new there out there, and then more importantly, to actually take the steps to make that real in our lives, to come back to the basics, to never see a single moment as insignificant, a single moment as as not being worthy of our attention to it, our presence here and now, a single person, a relationship not worthy of our attention, worthy of our immersion. Help us to be faithful in the little things so that the large things will simply take care of themselves. Thank you for this witness. Thank you for everything that you've done to try to get these points across to us, Lord. Continue to work with us and have patience with us and help us to move more and more in your direction every single day. Thank you for your love and thank you for not letting us forget that we can only do any of this because you loved us first. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.